Well, this morning we'll be back in the book of Romans as Tommy's preaching through. So if you can turn to chapter 9 or turn on your device and scroll there, Romans chapter 9 will be in verses 6 through 13. And we have you bailed out on the screen if you don't have a copy of God's Word with you, which if you don't own one, we have some free Bibles in the lobby as well. But let's read the Word of the Lord together, Romans 9, starting in verse 6. But it is not as though the word of God has failed. For not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel, and not all are children of Abraham because they are his offspring. But through Isaac shall your offspring be named. This means that it is not the children of the flesh who are the children of God, but the children of the promise are counted as offspring. For this is what the promise said. About this time next year I will return, and Sarah shall have a son. And not only so, but also when Rebekah had conceived children by one man, our our forefather Isaac, though they were not yet born and had done nothing, either good or bad, in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls, she was told, the older will serve the younger. As it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. This is the word of the Lord. Good morning. How's everybody doing today? Ready? All right, you ready to dig in to Romans 9? Let's pray and we'll, uh, we'll jump in together. Heavenly Father, please help us this morning to understand your word more deeply, to believe more sincerely, if that's possible, Lord, to ask for your help and, and understanding what you have done throughout history and sovereignly and freely choosing and electing and calling out for yourself a people to bestow your favor on, to bless, to rescue, and then to reach the world through them. It's a challenging challenging topic to understand and to embrace, Lord, especially when we see people close to us, those that we love, Lord, those that have endeared themselves to us, and they do not believe, at least for now, they don't believe the promises of God. They don't embrace Jesus as their Savior. And this is just a, a small part as we wade into the deeper parts of this chapter where you are explaining through the Apostle Paul what is going on. And I pray that you would help us, Lord. I pray that you would help me. May your spirit fall on us today and fill each and every one of us, open our eyes, illuminate our hearts. And we ask all these things in the mighty, powerful name of Jesus. Amen. God doesn't often meet our expectations, does he? Nobody said anything. Have you, have you ever had expectations for God and he didn't meet them? Anybody in here a million times over? Okay, here we go. Just make sure we had our coffee today. I have. I'm, I'm certain that you have too. We feel often let down disappointed, confused, maybe angry, if we're honest, angry, why God, or why not God, why didn't you remove that painful thorn from me, why didn't you heal that stage four, why didn't you resolve that painful relational conflict, relieve that intense suffering, save that sinner? that I care so deeply about. Why didn't you do that? If we're honest, we often feel betrayed. And at times even to, to maybe secretly, maybe we would never say it out loud, but we begin to question, can God be trusted? Can he keep his promises or are his promises open-ended? Can they be frustrated or will God change his mind? Or can we fall away from believing Romans chapters 9 through 11 deals with that, but the way that Paul deals with it is very specific, and and I'll be honest with you, I I have changed gears three different times preparing just today's message, because there's so many different ways I think Romans 9 can be explained, and man, if you get 10 sermons on Romans 9, you may get 10 different varieties, and saying the same thing maybe, or maybe not, different people interpret it differently, 
Uh, but I've just prayed for God to, to give us grace. I think there's a lot of people that chomp at the bit for Romans 9. They're like, bring it on, preacher. I've waited my whole life for, for a sermon on God's sovereignty. Stick it to us. And then you've got other people who are very confused about Romans 9. Why is this even here in the Bible? This scares me. This is intimidating. I don't understand it exactly. And so what I want to try to do this message is to give the context for what is Paul even doing in Romans chapter 9, starting in verse 6. What is he doing? Why are these chapters here? Do you know that some people, some people view chapters 9 through 11 in Romans as just some weird parenthetical statement that Paul makes? And honestly, the way they treat it is we could do with it or we could do without it. It seems like Romans 8 to Romans 12 would work so much better. All these amazing promises, over the top, worshiping God, and then here's the practical working out of your doctrine and your theology. We don't really need 9 through 11, but we do need 9 through 11. We do. Number one, all Scripture is breathed by God. All Scripture is profitable. And I would say even this, I've come to understand this as a Christian for several decades now, those parts of Scripture that we feel the most challenged by and maybe have the hardest time understanding, those sometimes prove to be the most powerful the most dynamic, sometimes the most paradigm-shifting spiritually passages of Scripture in, in our life and in our heart. That's been the case for me. Maybe it has for you. Maybe today will prove something like that of a beginning for you as well. So what I wanted to do is try and explain what is Paul doing here. Here is, is what's going on. Remember that Romans chapter 8 was filled with all these stunning realities of God's promises to us in Christ. What has God accomplished for us through Jesus Christ's rescue? What does it mean to be in Christ? All of Romans chapter 8 is filled with just breathtaking realities of God's favor on you because of Jesus. All these things are true of you now because you're in Christ. None of chapter 8 has any commands or imperatives. It's all declarations. It's all promises. The whole thing is just a bunch of promises. Do you remember that? He says... Eternal security, we are anchored, we are bought, we are adopted, we are justified, we are counted blameless, we're empowered, we're equipped. No one can condemn us, no one can separate us from God's love, ever. No accusations will stick. We are a highly favored people because of Jesus who now belong to God, we're more than conquerors, amen, end of story, right? But you remember, Paul is writing to a Christian church in the first century that would have consisted of both Gentiles in Rome, he's writing to Romans, and Jews. And he knows that there are some Jews who will be reading this epistle, and they will have heard the epistle being read out loud. They will have heard all those promises. Like, look, check this out. God is calling out for himself a people, and he is going to favor them and bless them and rescue them. And through them, bless the rest of the world, and they're never going to fall away. And the Jews are scratching their head, and they're going, but, but what about us? If that's true, if God is indeed a promise-making God and a promise-keeping God, how in the world can you explain, Paul, what's going on with the nation of Israel? Because by and large, when this was written, they had wholesale rejected Jesus. They did not embrace him as their Messiah. You would think with all eight of those privileges that we read about in verses 1 through 5. They had the covenants. They had the adoption. They had the patriarchs. Through them, Christ came as a Jewish Messiah, right? They had the temple. They had the law. They had the ceremonies, the, the worship set. Not the worship set like this, but this is how you worship God, atonement, covering, propitiation, all of that. The Jews gave us all of that. So if they're that favored already, had that many spiritual privileges, you would think they would be chomping at the bit to embrace their Jewish Messiah, but they weren't. They rejected Jesus. They wanted no part of him, by and large. In fact, not only did they not welcome him and not receive him, they had him executed. Crucify him. We have no king but Caesar. And so Paul has, it's really a dilemma. If you would have been a Jew in the first century and you would have embraced Jesus and you looked around and you said, come on guys, let's believe. And they're like, no. Not our Messiah, not our King. You would be scratching your head and you would have had the same questions that the church Paul is writing to would have had. He's a great teacher, Paul is. And under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, he is anticipating this question. I would say this objection. And he's saying, how do you explain the rejection of the Jews? And so chapters 9, 10, and 11 
That's how important this is. That's why we don't skip this. Chapters 9, 10, and 11, Paul is going to help his readers, his audience, and us included understand why you can still trust God in spite of what was going on with the Jews. So the title of this message is, Can God Be Trusted? Can God Be Trusted? Now, we could just say yes and go home, right? But we're not going to do that. We're going to do what the Bible does. And listen, we're going to get into some of, some of the uh, dynamics of Reformed theology. For, for, for some of you, that makes you jump up in your seat. We'll get into that later, not today. We're going to get into that. Probably the next section in Romans is the best place to deal with that. What is Reformed theology? What does it mean? I've never heard that term before. What does that mean? Uh, we'll, we'll talk about that. Today is just simply I want to deal with the context of what is going on in this chapter. Because the Jews, by and large, seem to be cast away, don't they? They seem to be cut off from God because of their unbelief, and so it may look on the surface like God is abandoning them. So what Paul's doing, he's getting really serious here. It's like he's an attorney, and he's in a courtroom, and he's preparing his opening statement like a skilled, like a skilled lawyer. And this is what's really interesting here. Paul is defending God. <laughs> I know you think, well, God doesn't need to be defended. Of course he doesn't. But Paul is an apostle, and he's an evangelist, and he loves his people. Paul's a Jew, too. And he wants them to understand there's this huge objection. He wants to do all he can to remove it. And so God is in the dock, like C.S. Lewis used to say, right? And this is called a theotomy. He's, he's defending the integrity of God. He's defending the justice of God. How can God do what he's doing and still possibly think that we could trust him so Paul is going to deal with this and look at the first look at the first verse here in verse 6 this is what it says but it is not as though the word of God has failed and that word literally means fallen so God made a promise and we got to deal with this what's the promise that Paul's talking about here the, that's what the word the word uh, used for word here, it can also be promise. It's not that God's promise has fallen. It's not that God's word has failed or flopped. Um, he's talking about his promise to the Jews. What promise is he talking about? God called out the Jews, and he said, I'm going to highly favor you. I'm going to call a people into existence who were not into, in existence before. I'm going to call them into existence for myself. I'm going to separate them. I'm going to bestow my favor upon them. I'm going to bless them, I'm going to provide for them, I'm going to protect them, and then through them I'm going to bless the world. That's the promise that God made. And so Paul is saying that promise holds, that promise has not fallen. That word means drop to the ground. You know, my kids beg me all the time, maybe any other parents in here with little kids, they beg me, Daddy, make me an airplane, make me an airplane, fold me an airplane. We even bought a book that has like eight gazillion designs of airplanes. Who knew? All these ways you can fold air, paper airplanes. And especially my smallest child, Cooper, he's four years old, and he's watching, he's like drooling, salivating for me to fold this thing. And I'm old school, I make, I pretty much make it the same way every time, he doesn't know this, don't tell him. Sometimes I'll stay, you ever staple those things on the bottom, it, it seems to work better, gives a little bit of weight, put some, put some tape on there, and uh, we'll dull the nose of it, because those things can put your eyes out, trust me, they can. And I'll, I'll throw it, and if it soars up into the air, uh, the way it was designed to, he's thrilled, he jumps up and down, and he screams, and he runs and grabs it, and then he smashes it or throws it in the wall and runs it. But if it falls to the ground, he howls in despair and in anger. And that's the picture here. Paul is saying, look, let me just state from the outset, it's not that God's word has, has failed. God's word, God's promise is still soaring. The problem is that you've misunderstood God's word. You've misunderstood God's promise. Now, here's where you're thinking, okay, it's 2023, Pastor. I'm not a Jew. Look around Grace Life, and if you could see the live feed from home, probably not many Jews are watching this. So what in the world does this have to do with us, right? What does this have to do with us? Well, have you ever misunderstood God's promise? Have you ever distorted God's promise? Yes, we all have. Sometimes we have help doing that with false teachers, and that makes me really angry when people do that, and it should you do. They take God's word, and they twist it and try to make it say something that it never, it never intended to say and when it's no longer even representing God. So this does impact all of us here, and I would say it, impa it impacts us in this way. Paul is dealing with a thorny issue, 
about why did some Jews not love Jesus. But the way that he deals with that, it's going to help us understand why does anybody love Jesus at all? Have you ever wondered that? Why do some people believe the gospel and some people seem to have absolutely no interest in the gospel or Jesus or church or prayer or you or your message or your evangelistic efforts at all? Why is that the case? Paul's going to give us some tremendous insight here, and he's going to help us. So this is ultimately applicable. It is not as if God's word has fallen. Why do some people see such beauty in Jesus? His message is attractive to them. His life is compelling. His words are riveting. No man ever spoke like this man. His promises are life. His authority is actually comforting, and it draws people in and other people He's hideous. His authority is a challenge. It's a threat. It's menacing. We will not have this man rule over us. They don't want it. They hate Jesus. He is not altogether lovely to them. What makes the difference? Well, the one word answer is grace. Grace makes the difference. Why does one person believe and another person not believe? Were they better? Were they more clever? Were they more virtuous? The Bible says categorically no. Grace makes all the difference. And Paul could have said that, and he will say that, but there's three chapters here, and so we're going to take it one step at a time. So, can we trust God? We can. How do we know that? Because of what his promises are and what they do, and this is the outline for today. I think we'll get through it today. We're going to do our best, all right? Even though you're like, oh, no, we won't. He's got four points, not three. Come on! <laughs> not all points are created equal, guys, so... Point number one, God's promises are, number one, free and uninfluenced. Two, spiritual, not physical. Three, by grace, not by earning. You could say not by works, but same, same idea, not by earning. And four, surprising, not predictable. So, point number one, God's promises are free and uninfluenced. What do I mean by that? I want to take a step back because here's what Paul's going to do. Man, he is a skilled uh, logical, methodical apostle. And I love just the way Paul teaches me so much, not about how to argue or debate, but how to make a point. How do you reason with people? How do you make a point and argue for the truth of Scripture? And how do you be an effective evangelist and apologist? Because Paul knows the very thing that most of the Jews were trusting in was that they were children of whom? Abraham. We belong to Father Abraham. How dare you question where we stand in the grand scheme of God's plan of redemption. So Paul is going to do, you know what judo is? Anybody in here in the mixed martial arts or probably know more about karate than I do? I'm told that judo is when you take somebody's momentum and you use it to your advantage and against them. Is that right? Is that correct? Somebody correct me if I'm wrong here. Somebody's coming at you and judo would be hi-ya and you use their, their momentum and maybe throw them over a building or something. I don't know. Somehow you leverage their strength or what they think is their strength uh, and make it a weakness and show them like, hey, bro, you are at my mercy now. That's what Paul does. He's going to take the very thing they trust in, Father Abraham, and he's going to use that primarily, the section we're looking at today, to show us some things. So let's look at Father Abraham. First of all, if we take a step back, we see that God made a promise to Abraham. Now, God's promises go back further than that. They go back to Adam. They go back to Noah. God is a covenant-making, covenant-keeping God, but for the purposes of this chapter, we're talking about Abraham, so let's just step back and look at that. You may not know this. This, uh, this is doing the same thing it always does. We'll see if it, if it works here. Here we go. Yeah. Can everybody see that? This is Josh. This is a weird place to find this, but in Joshua 24, leadership has changed hands from Moses to Joshua, they're about to go over into the promised land, and Joshua is giving them a sermon. This is what he says to all the people. Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, long ago your fathers lived beyond the Euphrates. Terah, the father of Abraham and of Nahor, and they, who's they? Abraham, Nahor, and Terah. They served other gods. And I took your father Abraham from beyond the river and led him through all the land of Canaan, and made his offspring many, I gave him Isaac. Now, I'm going to ask you a question. Let's see if the class is paying attention. This may seem more like a Bible study today than a sermon. That's okay. 
I'm a man of the book, or a church about the book, so we got to get all our thoughts about God and us and the world from, from God's word. They served other gods. If you serve other gods, what does that make you, class? Pagan, yes. There's another word for it, too. Idolater, right. So, man, this would have been painful for a Jew to admit this. What was Father Abraham when God selected him, elected him, and, and, and made a promise to him? What was Abraham? An idolater. That's right. That's right. Why did God pick Abraham then? That's exactly the right response. It's right there, what you had. Was it because Abraham was better than all the other pagan idolaters in that region? No. Was there something virtuous about Abraham? Or just amazing that Abraham was like, man, there's this amazing dude named Abraham, and God, he certainly won't pass over him. No, he was a pagan. He worshiped the moon god and Ur of the Chaldeans, just like his father and just like his father's father and just like his father's father. You can trace idolatry and sin and rebellion and law-breaking all the way back, even before there was a law, all the way back to Adam, right? In Adam, all sin, and Adam, all die. Abraham was an idolater. So God found him as a sinner and called him out and made a promise to him. And listen, it's no different with you and with me, friends. Romans 5, we, that's four chapters ago, right? When we were sinners, God died for us. When we were weak, God died for us. When we were his, what? Enemies. Man, don't you love that? Paul is a master of, he's like, when you were a sinner, you're like, ah, all right. When you were weak. Uh, okay, when you were an enemy, oh, we don't like that. But that's the truth. And it's the same for Abraham. He was an idolater. He was weak. He was a sinner. He was an enemy. And yet, because of his mere mercy, God chose Abraham and called him out and gave him an In fact, I was reading this story to my children the other day. You've got the Tower of Babel. Check this out. Chapter 11, Tower of Babel. All these people gathered together. God said, scatter and go and fill the earth. And they said, No. Not going to scatter. We're going to gather. We're going to build a city whose tower reaches up to the heavens, and we're going to make a, do you remember this? We're going to make a name for ourselves. That's what the Tower of Babel is all about. If you think that's some ancient idea that we no longer struggle with, ha, huh, how many people in here want to make a name for yourself? Everybody does. Be honest. Everybody wants to make a name for themselves. You're just like your ancestors. Shame on you, <laughs> We all want to make a name for ourselves. That's what the builders at the Tower of Babel did. And then how did that go for them? Not well. Not well at all. And the very next chapter, chapter 12, bam, God calls out Abraham. And he says, Abraham, I'm going to make, I'm going to give you a what? A name. It's amazing. It's like do things your way, do things the world's way, do things the secular way. And it flops. And God says, oh, that's, you want a name for yourself? Trust me. I'll give, you, I'll give you a name that will never perish. I'll give you a new name. I'll engrave it in the, on the palms of your hand is what it says in heaven. That nobody else even knows. God's going to give you a name. He's going to give you a legacy, I guess you could say that, an identity. So Abraham was just like all the other people. When God called him out, he was a sinner. He did not achieve God's favor. He received God's favor. In fact, that's the point that Romans Made earlier, whenever he said, Abraham believed God, and it was accounted to him as righteousness. God called Abraham out, and he said, hey, look, I'm going to give you a name. I'm going to bless you. I'm going to multiply you, and kings will come out of your loins. And then God said, here's what you have to do to receive that promise. You know, you've got to go, there's this bucket list. You've got to be really good, and you've got to, you know, Go retrieve the broomstick of the wicked witch of the West, and you've got to get enlightened, and you've got to make a pilgrimage. And No, none of that stuff. He said, you've got to believe me. That's a radical promise. It doesn't make any sense to you, probably, and it defies all human categories of understanding. But do you believe, Abraham? And the Bible says Abraham was led outside by God, looked up into the sky, saw the stars, right? And something, the gospel penny dropped in his heart, and he believed God, and that was accounted to him as righteousness. So the first thing about this promise is that it's free and it's uninfluenced. What do I mean by that? I mean, listen, God, God selects, God chooses, God elects. The whole chapter is going to make that argument. But God doesn't do it because of something attractive in us. Not at all. That's never been God's design or God's method. God's decisions are free. They're sovereign. They're mysterious to us. 
You can't bribe God. You can't manufacture a promise on your behalf from God. It just doesn't work that way. God is sovereign and uninfluenced in the way he has operated with humanity. In fact, we would have done it totally different. You know, in Deuteronomy chapter 7, 8, and 9, the children have, have came through the wilderness, and God is reminding them, now look, you're about to get to the promised land. You're going to have cities there that are amazing. I try to wrap my mind around this sometimes. It would be like, <clears throat> just think of the greatest city in the world, and all, all the occupants of that city, God removes them and gives you like the castles and the palaces, and you get there, and it's yours. Nobody else is there. They've been driven out, and God gives it to you. Eventually, you would be tempted to think, man, this is mine. I did this. This is the same thing with the children of Israel. They were given the land of Canaan. All the pagans that lived there were rooted out, and God gave them that land, and then he warns them. He says, you're about to have cities you didn't build. You're about to eat from crops and drink from vineyards that you didn't plant, and you're going to have to be careful. So beware, lest you say, our hands have done this, and look how numerous we are. Look how righteous we are. God says, don't you dare start to think that way. It's not because you're more in number than all the other Canaanites. In fact, you're few. You're fewer than them. And it's not because you're righteous, because you are a stubborn people. You're stiff-necked. God constantly had to remind them. It's like, there's nothing in you that attracted me to you. I chose you out of my sheer sovereign grace and mercy. And if we're honest, if, 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 if we were to just canvas the world, wouldn't we think, my goodness, God sure does waste a lot of power, man. If I were God. Now, let's just be honest. We thought that way sometimes. Man, God sure is wasting a lot of good. If I were God, man, I'd save so many more people than God saves. And if, if I were God, I wouldn't have gone to the Jews. Man, there's such a small number of people on this little bitty country in the Middle East. I would have gone to like Europe or Asia. You have millions of people in the Ming Dynasty. I would have like chosen somebody out of the Ming Dynasty. And put, no, that's not how God works. He defies human expectations and human categories. His work is sovereign, it's free, it's uninfluenced. And when God finds a person to set his love and affection on them, he doesn't find a virtuous person. He doesn't find a righteous person. He finds a sinner. He finds an enemy. Now, that's hard to understand for us. It's hard to wrap your mind around. It's hard to accept. But the Bible teaches this. Romans chapter 3 already has told us there are none righteous, no, not one. In fact, in fact let me read. I don't think I have it. I don't think I have it up, but this is what it says. Here's some of the things it says in Romans 3. The poison of asps is under our lips. Well, that's offensive. You're telling me my words are corrupt? Yep. Anybody in here never spoken a corrupt word? All right. Very good, man. Class, you're not dismissed yet, but you're doing all right. Because Romans 3 says you're corrupt in your conversation and your conduct and your character. Thoroughly corrupt, thoroughly depraved, all of us, all humanity, there are none righteous, no, not one. The poison of asp is under our lips. Our throats are an open tomb. We have feet swift to shed blood. The way of peace we have not known. There's no fear of God before our eyes. That is a categorical description of every human being who has ever lived. So who can possibly say that when God chooses or makes selections or elects people, it is because of their outstanding virtue, righteousness, and character. That's ludicrous. That's ludicrous. It's not true at all. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. In fact, if you read, if you read in Genesis chapter 6, right before the, the narrative about Noah, this is, what, this is what it says to describe all the human beings a few generations after Adam. <clears throat> you think, you know, Adam sinned, he, he and Eve, they rebelled, they were banished, kicked out of the garden, expelled. But I'm sure, they're, I'm sure their offspring heard the story, learned the lesson, and got better, right? Check this out. The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. Let me read that again, that last part, okay? The wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. Every intention, only evil continually. Is that offensive? That's what the Bible says describes our human condition, corrupt, depraved, fallen before God, every single human. There's no exceptions to that. And that's Genesis 6. You know how long we lasted? Two chapters. <laughs> Two chapters in the Bible, man was created upright. 
and we fell. And man, did we fall. Charles Spurgeon used to say, you know, a lot of people think that in the garden we fell and broke our little pinky. No, it's much worse than that. Rebellion, enmity, corruption, depravity. And the slime of Adam's rebellion, Spurgeon would say, covers the whole earth. We see it everywhere. We're fallen in our mind and our will and our disposition and our character. It affects everything we do, our emotions. We see evidence of the fall of man everywhere. Not just around us. We see it among us and we see it inside of us. And if you're an honest thinking person, you have to acknowledge that. And when you do, congratulations, you just embrace the Christian worldview. No other worldview explains why you text when you drive. <laughs> or <laughs> or you, you obey the speed limit because of those signs on the highway and because you're afraid of a policeman pulling you over. Right, Chief? Sorry, let's just be honest today. That's why. It's not because we're so virtuous, man. We just want to go 70. We want to honor the code, right? No, we don't. We don't want to honor the code. We just don't want to get a ticket and pay money. So, uh, but you know what's interesting? Right after that, only evil continually. You know what the, one of the very next statements says? But Noah found favor. And the word in Hebrew is the same for grace. Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. He didn't create it. He didn't manipulate it. He didn't earn it. He didn't manufacture it. Or it wouldn't be grace. He found favor. He found grace. So out of, some people speculate already, billions of people that had repopulated the, the earth. After Adam and Eve's rebellion, do you know how many people God called out and rescued? Eight. Eight people he preserved and rescued and put on the ark. And listen, Noah preached God's righteousness for 120 years. And do you know how many people heard and believed? Just his family, just eight people, eight souls. It's pretty staggering when you think about that. And then Jeremiah 17:9 later says this, it says that the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can know it? I did a little study on desperately sick. Uh, it means inoperable, incurable. I love the Hebrew language, man. It's so concrete. Incurable. God says there's, there's a stage five wickedness that's inoperative. There's nothing you can do. And that is the words that he uses to describe the human heart. Now listen, that doesn't mean that you're as wicked and depraved as you could be. Thank God. Thank God there is restraining common grace. Aren't you glad? Aren't you thankful for that? If we were all as wicked as we could be, this, this, this world wouldn't be livable. We couldn't live at all. You see, you see pockets of it in the news sometimes. Somebody gets it in their, in their head. Yeah, you know what? I'm going to go walk into an elementary school and I'm going to waste everybody. But the fact that that doesn't happen more, I'm telling you right now as a theologian and, and, and a pastor and a Christian, the fact that that doesn't happen all day, every day, is the restraining grace of God. It is. And you know what? The Bible says, as we get nearer and nearer to the return of Christ, it will happen more. And you know what? It is happening more, isn't it? And along with that, we have all these, I'm getting so off track right now. But birth pain, you know, Jesus described the second coming, birth pangs. Birth pangs. How many people have ever seen a woman in having real contractions, not Braxton Hicks, not the fake stuff, the real thing? They get more frequent and they get more intense. I've got six kids. They get more intense. They get more frequent. And you're like, man, something's coming. Somebody's coming, right? Jesus used that because he knew it's a common human experience. He says, as these birth pangs get louder and more painful and more frequent and more intense, the end is near. And the end is near, my friends. Near, I mean, obviously, math will tell you nearer than it's ever been, right? Nearer than it was last week, of course. That's exciting to me, but it's also, like we talked about last week, there's this urgency, man, to be God's agents and to get this message out there before it's too late. So, God's promises are free and they're uninfluenced. Nobody twisted God's arm and said, hey, I want you to go make a promise to this guy and this guy and this girl and this boy. No, that's not the way God operates at all. It never has been and it never will be. God is completely sovereign, free, independent of us. He doesn't take bribes. He doesn't show partiality. And the mind and heart of God alone are the reasons for why he does what he does. But the good news is God's good, and you can trust him. That shouldn't threaten you or make you afraid at all. That should make you, make you grateful because if God put those things in our, in our hands, we would wreck it like we do everything else. So that's just overarching, really, chapters 9, 10, and 11. The whole thing teaches that. In this section, here's the next point, point number two, how we doing? Man, the time goes really fast, doesn't it? Not all of you laughed. 
God's promises are spiritual, not physical. Spiritual, not physical. Now look, I need to qualify this a little bit. Paul is eventually going to come back all the way around in Romans chapter 11 and tell us more about the nation of the Jews and the Israelites. And what about all those promises that did have a physical and material dynamic to them about land and those kinds of blessings. He's going to come back, but right now he's dealing with something totally different. So here's the first thing, verse 6. It's not as though the word of God has failed, for not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel. Now that is a tough saying. Do you know what Paul is saying here? He's saying just because you are an Israelite and just because you have Jewish blood running through your veins, that does not mean that you are a true Israel in the spiritual sense of the word because God made a spiritual promise to Abraham and to all his descendants. It wasn't just a physical promise. Primarily, it was a spiritual promise. And if you misunderstand that, you're going to be disappointed and feel let down and be angry and feel dejected. So Paul wants to clarify this, and here's the way he does it. Here's the judo. He says, and I'll prove it to your Jews. I'll prove it to you Jews by using uh, the figure that you mention every breath. Father Abraham, we're going to look at his lineage, look at his offspring, look at his descendants. Check this out. Verse 7. And not all the children of Ab- not all are children of Abraham, because they are his offspring, but through Isaac shall your offspring be named. Verse 8. This means that it is not the children of the flesh who are the children of God, but the children of the promise are counted as offspring. For this is what the promise said. About this time next year, I will return, and Sarah shall have a son. So, he's taking uh, God's promise to Abraham that Abraham is going to have offspring, and God, through that line, is going to bless the nations. Do you remember what happened when Abraham and Sarah were 90 and 99 and they were promised they would have a son? Well, they were barren. They couldn't have any children. Sarah couldn't if that her body was too old. And so here's what often happens is that Abraham and Sarah said, what are we going to do? God's made this promise. It hasn't happened yet. <clears throat> we're going to have to act. Right? So often that happens. And Ishmael came about. If you don't know the history of Israel, here's what happened. Sarah said, Abraham, I'm too old. I can't have kids. so what you're going to have to do is take my handmaiden, take Hagar. She's not old. Her womb works. So you guys get together. She can have offspring. Ta-da, God's promise. So that's what happened. Abraham and Hagar got together, and ta-da, Ishmael came out. Ishmael was an offspring of Abraham. But guess what? God passed over Ishmael. He said, no, Ishmael will not be the son of promise even though he was a physical descendant of Abraham. So the argument that Paul is making is just because you have Abraham's blood in your veins does not mean that you are going to be caught up in the promise that God made to Israel. And listen, here's what's really interesting to me. This is just a side note. If you read the history, it's around chapters 20 and 21 and 22, that Abraham actually favored Ishmael. Did you guys know that? Eventually, God came back and he said, look, I'm not going to use Ishmael. You and Sarah, like I told you the first time, are going to have a son. His name is going to be, uh, and they called his name Isaac, and he is going to be the seed through which the promise comes. And you remember what Abraham said to God when he said that? He said, no, 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 no. Oh, that Ishmael may live before you. Use Ishmael. And God said, no, I'm not going to do it. Isn't that just like God? We have, you know, we have our, our preference. Abraham actually preferred Ishmael over Isaac, and God said, no. No, I'm going to defy all your expectations, and I'm going to do it my way, not your way. So that's the first argument uh, that he uses in this point, is that God's promises are not physical, they're spiritual. And look, guys, there's a lot of application that I could make here. Let me, let me give you some scriptures. Oh, good, it's back, back up and working, I think. Yeah, this is not the... Uh, This is not the first time that this argument has been made. Check this out. This is back in chapter 2. No one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly, nor is circumcision outward and physical, but a Jew is one inwardly. I, I wish that we could wrap our minds around how jolting this would have been for a Hebrew to read this or hear this. A Jew is one 
inwardly, and circumcision is a matter of the heart, by the Spirit, not by the letter. His praise is not from man, but from God. Paul has been making this point all along, that the Israel of God, or uh, a true Jew, is one who is, who is one inwardly, who has embraced God's promises. Circumcision is not necessarily, it's an outer sign of an inward reality, right? It's not just because you're circumcised externally doesn't make you a child of God. It's not a physical promise, it's a spiritual promise. And check this out. Whenever John the Baptist came, who was the forerunner of the Messiah, he knew exactly how the Jewish people were thinking about Jesus. So this is what, they, what he said. The, the Jews came down to him, and they were wanting to be baptized. And he says, bear fruits in keeping with repentance, and do not begin to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. For I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. Even now, the axe is laid to the root of the tree, Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. What's he saying there? He's saying just because you are Abraham's children does not mean that you had the favor of God resting on you. In fact, if that's where you're at and you're boasting in that, the axe is laid to the tree right now, you're about to be cut off, as it were, spiritually. That's the warning that, that John the Baptist was giving. And it goes even further because Jesus himself had this encounter with the Jews. Check this out. So Jesus said to the Jews who had believed him, if you abide in my word and you are truly my disciples and you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. Now just stop there for a minute. Here, here are people who are claiming to belong to God and Jesus is telling them, well here's the criteria, if my word abides in you. It's interesting, it's the same wording that Paul uses. It's not that God's word has failed, right? Jesus is talking to the Jews and he says, if my word abides in you, then you're a disciple indeed. And you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. And they answered him, verse 32, We are offspring of Abraham and have never been enslaved to anyone. How is it that you say you will become free? And he continues, Jesus answered them, Truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. The slave does not remain in the house forever. The son remains forever. So if the Son sets you free, you will be free indeed. I know that you are offspring of Abraham, yet you seek to kill me because what? What's he saying? My word finds no place in you. He's talking about this promise, right? This word. It's not finding spiritually a place in their heart. He's saying don't trust in your blood and your lineage and your heritage because the promise is spiritual. It's not physical. And then the last thing he said was this. I, sp I speak of what I have seen with my father and you do what you have heard with your father. They answered him, Abraham is our father. Jesus said to them, if you were Abraham's children, you would be doing the works Abraham did. But now you seek to kill me, a man who has told you the truth that I heard from God. This is not what Abraham did. Do you guys see? It's the same principle. You can even see it in the book of Acts. When Paul's going around, he's preaching about Christ. He's preaching <clears throat> Jesus is the Messiah. He offers you rescue. But the Jews primarily were offended. It was a stumbling block to them. They were offended. They were angry. Don't preach to us about a cross. Don't tell us we have to be baptized. That was what Gentiles did. That's what Naaman the Syrian, this pagan Syrian did. Don't tell us we have to go through the same things. They were offended by that. And Jesus is telling them the same thing that John told them, John the Baptist, the same thing that Paul was telling them is that the spirit, the, the promise, excuse me, is spiritual, not physical. It is possible to have impeccable outward descent from Abraham and yet to not belong to Abraham's children. In fact, this is what the Puritan John Flavel said. If Abraham's faith be not in your hearts, it will be no advantage that Abraham's blood runs in your veins. Why? Because they are not all Israel who are of Israel. That's the whole point here. It may be hard to accept, but that's, I mean, it's, it's can't even contest it, but that's the point that the Apostle Paul is making here. Now, what does that have to do with us again? Can you apply that to us? Yes, I can. Certainly can. I'm happy to. And we'll probably have to end with this today. Here we go. Is there such a thing as a Christian nation? Good, good. Everybody got really quiet. That means you're thinking. Because this is the problem that I think we have in 2023 in our context, in our culture, is that we tend to believe that because of maybe physical location, 
or because of our heritage or because we grew up in this culture or we grew up in the Bible Belt, we grew up in the South, my mom and dad belong to this church, I've been baptized, I'm a church member, I belong to a Christian nation, we tend to presume on those things as if that kind of ushers us into God's covenant promises. And friends, it doesn't. I think we know that if we think about it enough. If we think about it enough, we know that we would acknowledge that. But I think maybe the secret hope we have is that, man, you know what? I tell my kids this all the time. I have six kids, and I say, look, your dad is an evangelist. I'm a pastor. I'm a church planner. But if you stand before God on Judgment Day, and you say, I was in church all the time, and my dad preached, you will have zero, zero hope, zero confidence, not an ounce, not an ounce. In fact, my children will probably be in more danger because of that. Seriously, because of that, because it's going to be so easy to presume on that. It's going to be so, we do it all the time. I was born in the Bible Belt. I know the Bible stories. I've talked to people as an evangelist at times, and I'll say, are you familiar? Like, yeah, yeah, I know that. Me and God are good. I know about the Bible. So? <laughs> Just because you know about the Bible? I mean, look at the Jews, man. They could recite whole, whole scrolls. They knew them backwards and forwards and totally missed with the spiritual perception of what they meant. That's why they rejected Christ when they came. So many of you have been baptized. Do not trust in your baptism. Maybe you have formally joined this church or you've joined another church. That doesn't matter. It's good. Hey, listen, I'm all about belonging to a church. I think there's an overwhelming argument in the scriptures, and I'm happy to walk you through that as to why church membership is the way to go. You know, they kept up with, with the sheep in the New Testament. Even letters would be sent from one church to the next. It's biblical. It's wise. It's a good strategy. You should do that. But what you should not do is trust in that. When you get to heaven, please don't tell God that I'm good. I was a Grace Life member. <laughs> I mean, tell him you remember Grace Life, but don't hope in that. And don't, maybe don't tell him I was your pastor either. I don't know. It might not get you anywhere. <laughs> you understand what I'm saying? I love you guys. I want to be a good pastor to you. It is so, the natural default of the human heart is to place your trust in something good that's outside of Jesus Christ. And that will be a nightmare and it will be tragic for you. Now, look, I'm going to close right there, but I want to give you a little teaser for next time. I love Paul. I love the way he makes arguments, and he knows that some of the Israelites and the Jews and the Hebrews that were listening to this would say, okay, okay, we got you. Ishmael was the son of Abraham, and, and yet God rejected him, but his mother wasn't Sarah. So, ha, gotcha, Paul, gotcha. And Paul goes, oh, man, you got me. And he goes, just kidding. No, you didn't get me, because listen to this next thing he's going to say. He's going to say, fine, what about Jacob and Esau? What about Jacob and Esau? They both came from the same mother, right, Rebecca, and they came from the same father, Isaac, who was Abraham's son. And not only that, they were twins. So we're going to talk about that next week because God says, Jacob have I loved, Esau have I hated. Whoa, that's, that's one of the most jarring statements you will ever read in the Bible. And don't go Google what it means, Okay because you're going to get about 5 million explanations of it, and they're all going to contradict one another. You let me tell you. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> We're going to talk about that next week, okay? But guys, take for today, just take the points of applications. What are you hoping in that you are right with God? What is God's promise resting on? That you, you were born in a Christian family? That's great. That's wonderful. Thank God that you have a Christian worldview. Thank God that you have an understanding of the Bible, that you heard the name of Jesus come off the lips of your mom and dad, that you were brought to church, that you were part of a youth group. Thank God for all of that. But don't you dare trust in it. You put your hope in Jesus Christ alone and nothing else. My hope is built on nothing less than Schofield Notes and Moody Press. No, than Jesus, than Jesus' blood and righteousness, right? That's the only hope that we have. Is that your hope this morning? Let me just stop and... Look you in the eyes, your pastor. I don't get to do this enough. I don't take opportunity enough. I want to challenge you. What are you hoping in this morning that you are right with God? I hope that, that, I hope that that's important to you. Don't you want to be right with God? Don't you want to be reconciled? Don't you want things to be okay between you and God? Don't you want to be accepted in his sight? Don't you want to be forgiven and justified and blameless? Friends, there's only one way that will ever happen to people like us who are desperately incurable in our wickedness, in our heart. There's only one thing that can be done. Somebody else has to come and do in your place what you are unable and unwilling to do. Jesus Christ. And the good news is he did. He has. He came. He lived the perfect life you and I could never live. 
and he died a horrible, nightmarish death that you and I deserve. All the wrath of his father, the bitter cup of God's wrath, Jesus drank it down to the very last dregs. Worse than any medication you would ever have to take, take as a kid before they had flavored syrup, right? The, the bitter cup of God's wrath, Jesus drank it all down for you and for me. His love was that deep for us. We were so sinful, he had to do that. There was no other way for God's justice to be satisfied against a sinful humanity than that somebody would come and take the penalty for our sin. And he gives you his perfect righteousness, and he takes all of your guilt and condemnation on himself because he loves you that much. Are you trusting in his performance, or are you trusting in your performance? I ask that question all the time to people who want to join the church because that's the only condition for joining this church is that you have a clear comprehension of the gospel and you have responded appropriately in repentance and faith. I ask people all the time, hey, listen, um, here, here's the question I will ask them. How do you know that you're right with God? Or why are you a Christian? And if they say, well, I'm trying, I know they don't have a, a clue what the gospel is. Everybody got really quiet. You don't try to become a Christian. It's like Yoda. One does not try. One either is or is not. You're either a Christian or you're not a Christian. You either believe God's promise about Jesus or you don't believe it. But you don't try to become a Christian. There's no effort. There's no conditional period of will they make it or will they not make it. You either believe in Jesus Christ alone or you reject that promise. That's the difference between being in the kingdom and outside of the kingdom, right? Is that clear to everybody? Man, I pray it is. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, I pray every single person in this room understands that we don't try to become Christians. It's not our performance that we are trusting in and hoping in. It is the finished performance of Jesus. You won the achievement, and you, and you let the, uh, the Medal of Honor get pinned to our chest, and you take the punishment and the condemnation and the guilt and the shame on our behalf. We thank you so much for that, Lord. I pray for every single person in this room. And every single person watching from home, I pray there's no confusion at this point at all. That people know that you are their substitute. You are the Lamb of God who came to take away the sins of the world. I pray they would look upon you, Lord. Their trust would be completely in you. And we wouldn't shake our fist at you and, and wonder, why us and, and not somebody else? We would fall on our face and say, thank you, Lord, for your sovereign unconditional grace and love and mercy lord and that would cause us to pray and to evangelize even more for those who do not know you <clears throat> i pray all these things in jesus name amen